0: Will you take your Bibles now and turn to Colossians chapter 1? In a few minutes, I would like for us to examine verses 15 through 20 as we endeavor to answer the question, Who is the Christ of Christmas? As you will soon see, it is impossible to plumb the depths of this text But by the power of the Spirit, we will try to sail over its surface and explore it as deep as He enables us to do this morning. And as I say, I I wish to do this under the heading of who is the Christ of Christmas. Obviously, this is the Christmas season. And I think it's also obvious to most all of you that we live in a culture where the Christ of Christmas is misunderstood. Most people could not answer the question, who is the Christ of Christmas, with any kind of certainty or clarity, and certainly without reverence. All you need to do is look at the typical yard displays going up and down the highway, and you will see what people think about the Christ of Christmas. You will be hard-pressed to find the nativity scene. You'll see far more Frosty the Snowmans than you will Jesus Christ. I was reading in one of the news articles about a Salvation Army bell ringer in uh, California, maybe in the Sacramento area. Maybe you read about him. He's out in front of a Walmart and he's wishing people a Merry Christmas and some guy decked him and started beating up on him. They're still trying to find the guy. This is really indicative of where people are when it comes to understanding the Christ of Christmas. And my goal this morning is to appeal to God's own word to answer this question so that by His word we can know with authority who He really is. And so that he can have the preeminence in all things. So that he can be the one that reigns supreme in our heart. The one who sits upon the throne of our heart. The one that we honor. The one that we adore. The one that we worship and serve. And all that we think and all that we say and do. And frankly, anyone who celebrates Christmas without this focus is a fool. So, who was this child named Jesus who was born some 2,000 years ago? Whose name is still known pretty much all around the world to this very day. Who was this infant who was born in obscurity to an ethnic group that was and continues to be the most despised people on the planet? Who was this man Who grew up to become a man, a baby that grew up to become a man, who never ever promoted himself, and yet he was a man that was despised and rejected. Despite all of that, he changed the course of history. Who was this man who had no earthly possessions, not even a home. A man who for three years wandered around in about a 60 mile wide circle, telling people things they did not want to hear, exposing sin as if he knew them intimately, continually attacking the religious elite of that day, exposing their hypocrisy. Who was this man whose enemies admitted that he could do miraculous supernatural things and yet they attributed his miraculous works to Satan? Who was this man who spent most of his time with the poor and the uneducated, the outcast, the social misfit, a man who who chose uneducated, untrained, and in some cases unwanted social misfits to be his representatives. Who was this man that preached a message that was so utterly offensive, so ridiculous, that even his own countrymen cried out for his blood? A man who was willing to die and ignominious and excruciating death on a Roman cross for crimes that he never even committed. Who was this man whose birthday is still celebrated some 2,000 years later? In fact, his birth is recognized as the division of the calendar era in which we live. And yet, the vast majority of the world despises him. They refuse to even allow his name to be spoken or printed on public property. A man whose birthday is celebrated by millions of people who spend billions of dollars on gifts and extravagant parties, yet the very name of that honored person cannot be mentioned without bringing offense or embarrassment a name so despised that school children are not allowed to sing about him, not allowed to mention his name on his birthday. And yet they can sing about Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and a partridge in a pear tree, and it's not even their birthday. Folks, does this strike you as odd? Even bizarre? Of course it does. But does it also strike you as supernatural? There's something going on here. Who was this child that became a man, a man whose birthday millions celebrate, but whose origin they deny, whose life they despise, and whose purpose they refuse to concede? Who is the Christ of Christmas? Well, God tells us in many places in His Word, one of which is in Luke chapter 2. Remember, before His birth, an angel angel appeared and said to his virgin mother, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name Him Jesus. Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called... The son of God. And the angel also came to her husband and said in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for that which has been conceived in her as of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. But folks, perhaps the most comprehensive answer to this question of who is this Christ of Christmas can be found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. A description that was penned by a Jewish rabbi who had a personal encounter with Jesus, an encounter that utterly transformed his life forever. And Here, beloved, we have a divinely inspired explanation of Jesus Christ Pinned some 30 years after his death. Let me read this to you, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Dear friends, this is the Christ of Christmas. The first recipient of these words was a first century church in Colossae, a church that was founded by a man named Epaphras who had come to saving faith through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This was a a city in ancient Phrygia, which was a Roman province of Asia. It would would be a part of modern-day Turkey today. Colossae had a mixed population of both Jews and Gentiles, and both of these groups were represented in that early church. And both both of them brought to the church some of the heretical baggage that was a part of their lives before they came to saving faith in Christ. For example, the Jews were filled with legalism. They thought, for example, that it was necessary for a man to be circumcised in order to be saved. They believed in the observance of ceremonial rituals, of the Old Testament law, all of the dietary restrictions and festivals and Sabbaths. And they even believed in in rigid asceticism, uh, a myriad of rules about self-denial that they had concocted. They also believed in the worship of angels and mystical experiences. So imagine that was your background and now you come to saving faith in Christ. And you come to church and you're trying to figure out, in light of all of that, who Jesus really is. And then those sitting next to you are from Gentile backgrounds, and the Gentiles in that realm were pagan mystics, and they loved philosophy. They loved to philosophize about the meaning of life. Who am I? Where am I from? Why am I here? Is there life after death? And they had all of the ridiculous things that men can come up with to try to answer those questions. And all of this eventually gave birth to the heresy of Gnosticism, which flowed out of the Greek philosophy known as dualism. Matter is evil, spirit is good. If you saw that ridiculous film that Hollywood put out about Noah, and I preached on this once, that is based on ancient Gnosticism. You can read much of what they had in some of the ancient Gnostic texts. So this stuff is still alive. So many of these people believe that God is good because he is spirit. But now wait a minute, if God, if Jesus is God, and he takes on human flesh... And he is materialized in that way. How can he be good? See, they argued that Jesus was merely one of many emanations that descended from God. And that we are basically um, less than God. But certainly Jesus, therefore, would also be less than God. So the Gnostics believed in these kinds of things. They also held to uh, secret Um, religious thinking in terms of of higher knowledge, knowledge that transcends Scripture, the ascended knowledge that was necessary for salvation and things such as this. And of course that knowledge is only available to certain enlightened people. Of course these kinds of deceivers breed like fruit flies on a rotten banana. They do it even to this day. We see it, for example, in the, in the New Age um, Hindu physician Deepak Chopra, the spiritual advisor to Oprah Winfrey, uh, the great hero of the democratic left, an emissary of Satan who wrote, for example, quote, God is not an external deity, but the inner intelligence within you that mirrors the wisdom of the cosmos. Profound. So, with these competing religious convictions and philosophies, the Church of Colossae was a mess, as you can imagine. And like so many today, they were confused about the question of who is Jesus, who was Jesus, and so forth, and what should we do with this Jesus. So, these competing philosophies and all of this error caused Epaphras, the pastor, and the founder of the church, to run to Rome and find the Apostle Paul who was in prison to try to seek his counsel. Paul, what am I going to do with these people? Here's what's going on. And what we have before us in the letter to the Colossians is an inspired letter the Apostle wrote to clarify these issues primarily surrounding the identity of Jesus Christ and thus Confronting these false teachers that had infiltrated the church. He wants them to be, according to chapter 1 and verse 9, filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And he warns them in chapter 2 and verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. By the way, the tradition of men referred to those false teachers that boasted of, of higher knowledge that had been transmitted to them down through the centuries through tradition. The tradition among the initiated, mind you. The tradition among the enlightened. And in practice, they embraced asceticism, believing that matter and body were really the sources of evil and so forth. Which, by the way, again, it was a very useful deception in order to eviscerate the truth of the gospel. Especially the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Satan is brilliant at his deceptions. He also warned them about the elementary principles of the world. Elementary, by the way, refers to that which is earthly, that which is carnal, that which is outward, rather than according to Christ. And We still witness the same kinds of deceptions today regarding the deity of Christ and God's command for us to worship him. So, beginning in verse, verses, uh, and, and actually beginning in verse 15 and going through verse 20 specifically this morning, he really cuts through the very core of the issue. And here, dear friends, he reveals the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. And he does this in two categories that really encompass the entirety of our existence as human beings. He describes, number one, Jesus' preeminence over creation, and number two, his preeminence over redemption. Now, I might also add that it is believed that this was probably a hymn of common confession that was sung by the early church. And to be sure, it was a, and is to this very day, a literary jewel that refracts the full spectrum of of spiritual, spiritual light that reveals the glory and the majesty of Christ. And certainly, we will not see that full glory until we see Him one day face to face. And I cannot wait for that day. I hope you share my passion. So here God Himself speaks through His servant Paul and defines the Christ who so many demand must be excluded from Christmas. First of all, let's notice what he has to say regarding his preeminence over creation. Verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here, dear friends, we learn that the babe in the manger was God. It says here, he is the image. In the original language, the word is icon. It means likeness. Our English word icon comes from this. And it's, it, it, it means representation. It means likeness, a symbol, a statue, a picture, if you will. He is the likeness of God. Like the reflection that we would have when we look into a mirror. We see that likeness. That's what Jesus does. He reflects God because He is God. But the, but the term also carries the idea of manifestation. Manifestation. In other words, the very nature and character and being of God are perfectly revealed in the person of Christ. And for this reason, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, that we have, quote, the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, or the glory of God in the face of Christ. As human beings, we are also made in the image of God, Right? Genesis one twenty seven. We understand that, and in certain ways, we bear resemblance of our Creator. Like him, we have an intellect, we have a will, we have emotions. However, Adam's sin in the garden ruined all of that, and the subsequent curse upon man has greatly marred the original image of God in man. So we are not holy as He is holy. We are sinful. Moreover, unlike God, we do not possess His incommunicable attributes, those attributes that only God has, that He does not share with others. We are not eternal. We are not omnipotent. We are not omnipresent. We are not sovereign. We are not unchangeable, and so on and so forth. But here the Apostle Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ is the perfect likeness and the perfect manifestation of of God. And he's also saying here, and this is very important, he did not become God when he came to earth or any time thereafter. It says that he is, he is the image of the invisible God. In his incarnation the invisible God became visible, think of it that way, very simple. So that we could behold our Creator. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Colossians 2 and verse 9, In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And also in verse 3 of chapter 2, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So indeed, Christ is God made manifest. And for this reason, Jesus said in John fourteen nine, He who has seen me has seen the Father. You will remember in our study of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we read that he is the exact representation of God's nature. Philippians 2, 6, he existed in the form of God. He was equal with God. And of course, this is, this is our Lord's repeated claim throughout Scripture as we hear what he had to say when he was on earth. He was eternally God's image, from everlasting to everlasting. He was God, and he is God, very God. And this is consistent with all of Scripture. And because Jesus is God, he is eternally the image of God, making him, according to the latter part there of verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. In Greek, the prototokos, which means the highest ranking, the first in rank or position. In other words, to Him belongs the right and dignity of the firstborn in relation to every creature. He is the highly exalted one, the one above every creature, the heir and ruler of all, and indeed He is the creator of every creature. Now this does not mean that He is the first created being in a long line of created beings like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or other cults would have you to believe. It means that He is the preeminent one. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, In these last days God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power." Now in ancient days, the firstborn was accorded special rights and special privileges that would not be shared by the other siblings. The firstborn would be the heir of the father's possessions. He would be the manager of the household and so forth. And of course, all of these things apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal, preexistent, self-existent, uncreated creator. He is the sustainer and preeminent inheritor over all creation. As verse 17 says, he is before all things pretty well summarizes it, doesn't it? He is before all things. So in order to refute the central theme of the heretics in the church at Colossae, Paul begins by affirming the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not some created being. He is not some emanation from God in a long series of emanations. And then he goes on to broaden the scope of his supremacy in verse 16. He says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Here again, Paul stresses Christ's preeminence above every creature. Regardless of whether they are material or spiritual He created them. In fact, the grammatical construction here indicates that he is the creator of the invisible in the heavens and the visible on the earth. That's the idea. He goes on to say, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And this speaks of the specific ranks of angelic beings that exist. Thrones and dominions speak of throne spirits like the cherubim that, that dwell and in the immediate presence of God around his throne. And then there's rulers and authorities. These are generally mentioned together in the New Testament and are believed to refer to angels of lesser rank. They're all around us, by the way. They're present even in this room today, right now. And Paul's point is simply this. How ridiculous... To worship angels who are subject to and worship the Lord Jesus Christ themselves, the one who created them. That's the point. Again, dear friends, this is the Christ of Christmas. Notice also that he is not only the divine agent of creation, he is also the very goal of creation. Do you realize the very purpose of everything that exists is ultimately to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 16, at the end he says, all things have been created by him and for him. He created all of the angels to do his bidding and all of the ministering spirits that he uses to minister to us, to the saints. We know that angels were with him at the giving of the law at Sinai. We read about Michael, the angel that has been the historical protector of Israel. We read about Gabriel that announced Jesus' birth at Bethlehem. We read about the angels that ministered to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Angels that stood watch over his empty tomb We know that they accompanied him when he ascended into heaven. And we know that they will accompany him again when he descends back to this earth in power and great glory. And he is even over all of the rebellious fallen angels who oppose him and serve Satan. Who who was also created by him and for him to accomplish his purpose in redemption, which is to bring glory to himself. He created heaven for his abode, a place to display his glory to his perfected bride, his church. Did not Jesus promise in Matthew 25 that, quote, when he comes in his glory, all of the angels will be with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne? Verse 34. He will say to his own, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And because of his holiness and sovereign rule over his universe, there must also exist a domain where sin must be punished. So Jesus created hell, which is the eternal prison of Satan and his minions, along with all men who have violated his law and refused to seek his mercy and grace and believe in Christ. Folks, this is the Christ of Christmas. My friends, Christ Jesus is the eternal word of God, he tells us. He's the one that created this earth and all that is in it. John chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, this magnificent text, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that was come into being. Moreover, it was Jesus, therefore, who created us. He created man for his eternal purposes. Spurgeon captures this in his own inimitable way, his own style. He said this, This creature, knowing evil and knowing good, strengthened by divine grace, should, of its own free will, cling to the good and eschew the evil, and should be forever God's best ally against all revolt in his dominions. For this creature, though it had known evil, was to become a child of God, to be a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. These creatures, Spurgeon went on to say, partly spiritual and partly material, were to have at their head Christ Jesus, who was to be the model of them all. And they were to be like him, and to be his companions forever, and to be to him more than companions, to be his friends with whom he might hold familiar intercourse, and to be to him even more than friends, to be united to him in conjugal relationship, to be so completely one with him that they should be, quote, members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That his life should be their life, and that their life should be derived from him. Dear friends, this is the Christ of Christmas. The one who is preeminent over creation. Verse 17, and he is before all things. In other words, he is before all things in time and also in rank. He is the preexistent forerunner. He said in Revelation chapter 22 verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Indeed, he is infinitely above all things. Ephesians 1 verse 21 says that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then back to verse 17, he makes this incredible statement as if the others weren't incredible. It says, and in him all things hold together. Literally, the language is saying, in him, all things continue to cohere. In other words, he is both the unifying unifying principle and personal sustainer of all that he has created. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Beloved, do you realize that when Jesus was but an embryo, in his mother's womb he was holding his created universe together you realize that that little baby that was in a manger was holding his created universe together in him all things hold together my friend if you do not believe this your God is too small Moreover, you believe a God that does not exist because this is the God of the Bible. This is staggering, isn't it? We look around and see an orderly system in which we live, not a chaotic system. We look around and we see the inviolable fixed laws of physics in the material universe that maintain the unity of all the complex systems. They're all holding together. The sun, when it does come up, comes up in the east every time, doesn't it? And it sets in the west. The law of gravity never changes, and on and on it goes. In fact, we know that the slightest change in the rate of the earth's rotation around the sun or the most minute change of angle on its axis would cause the earth to either freeze or burn. Physicists tell us that the slightest change in the mass of a proton would result in the dissolution of hydrogen atoms, which would cause the entire universe to dissolve into oblivion. Physicists are still utterly baffled in understanding the nucleus of an atom how it all holds together. Eventually the one who holds these protons together will stop doing so in final judgment. And the nuclei of the atoms will fly apart. Scripture speaks of this for example in 2 Peter 3.10. At that time the heavens will pass away with a roar. That term roar in the original language is this. So you all know a little Greek today, don't you? The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Yet, dear friends, how sad to watch man try to understand the physical universe in which he lives while at the same time rejecting the one who created it and who sustains it. All for His glory. Well not only is He preeminent over creation, secondly He is preeminent over redemption. Notice verse 18, He is also head of the body, the church. So here, dear friends, we see Christ's supremacy over His new creation, the church. It's an amazing thought. This is where new creatures in Christ are are united together by grace through faith. We're all part of this this living organism in which He speaks metaphorically as His body over which He is the head. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, He is the head over every man, or He says the head of every man is Christ. And therefore He goes on to say that the head of His church is, That he is the head of the church into into which all believers have been immersed. The church, the ecclesia, in the original language, which means the assembly, the congregation, a term embracing all of the redeemed, those that have been called out and placed into this assembly. He is the source of the church's life. He is the authority of the body. Even as the human body responds to the head, Christ is our spiritual head unto which we respond. By the way, 500 years ago, this is why there was a great reformation because there were those who argue, as many do to this day, that it, was, it is not Christ who is the head of the church, it is the Pope. Sadly, and I say this sorrowfully and prayerfully, The Pope is a charlatan that does not understand the gospel and that does not know Christ. And he is certainly not the head of the church. Christ is. It is Christ who gives life and growth and direction to this amazing body that is made up of these vastly diverse creatures. All we have to do is look around and none of us look the same. None of us think the same. Think of the enormous diversity in gifts and ministries and preferences even in our local body. And yet it is Christ, the head, that creates unity out of diversity. He is the one that causes all of these individual parts to be submissive to Him and to prefer one another and love so that this body can function. If He didn't do that, we would not exist. Verse 18, he goes on to say, and he is the beginning, meaning he is the origin, he is the source of the life of the church. And he says here, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, the first one to be resurrected from the dead. Why? So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. In other words, his preeminence will extend beyond the old creation and into the new creation so that someday his Supremacy will be universal. Moreover, his triumphant resurrection, guess what? It guarantees ours. That's the hope that we have in Christ. He said in John 14, 19, Because I live, you too will live. Romans 8:29 says that He has power over life and death. Second Timothy one ten, it is our Savior Christ Jesus who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel. Now, why did he do all of this? What is he up to here? Paul makes it clear in our text at the end of verse 18, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. In other words, so that he might have preeminence in his regenerated church. The same kind of preeminence he had before he created the world. And certainly, dear friends, the question for you is, does he have the preeminence in your life? Is he a priority in your life? Does your life orbit around him? So here Paul reinforces his point once again, that Jesus is God, he's not some emanation from God. This is the Christ of Christmas, the one who should have first place in everything rather than in nothing, as the world would have us believe. Can you imagine public school teachers teaching this? Can you imagine our kids coming home and saying, oh, we just learned these amazing truths today out of Colossians 1? Can you imagine university professors teaching the truth that God has Reveal to us. Instead, our students are taught that we are merely sophisticated germs that billions of years ago crawled out of some primordial swamp and eventually evolved into the myriad of species that exist today. I was curious about this, by the way, not too long ago. I was reading some scientific journals on species. That's what the Word of God does to me a lot of times, doesn't it? You read something, you think, I just want to think that through some more. And I learned from some of these journals that about 1.2, there's about 1.2 million species that they have cataloged. And they believe that 86% of existing species on earth and 91% of species in the ocean still await description. I don't know how accurate any of that is. The point is, there's a whole bunch more out there that we don't know about. Okay, Can we put it that way? Moreover, they believe through the fossil record and so forth that most species are Extinct. But, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ had nothing to do with any of this. We all know that. The diversification of species is merely a result of evolutionary process. My friends, the chimpanzees are running the zoo. To be more precise, biblically, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5 and verse 19. Or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever so that they might not see the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. And Paul goes on to add in verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. In other words, God in all His fullness, the totality of divine powers and attributes are found in the Christ of Christmas. He was not one of many spiritual beings emanating from God each possessing different powers and and attributes of divinity as the Gnostics taught and as they teach today, but rather all the fullness of deity dwells with Him. The term dwell translates a, a Greek verb that suggests a permanent and not a temporary residence. And it was all because of the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness of divinity would dwell within Christ. But grammatically, the verb rendered, it was the Father's good pleasure, is linked to something else that is so profound. And here we see the gospel in verse 20. And through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself. Beloved, here again we see Christ's preeminence in redemption. To reconcile means to effect a thorough change back to a previous state. That's the idea. It implies restitution to a prior state from which something has fallen. It implies a change from enemy to friendship. Reconcile is one of several terms used in the New Testament to describe our salvation, along with other terms like justification, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, and so forth. John MacArthur said it this way, "...in justification, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but is declared righteous. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted his freedom." In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, but the debt is paid and forgotten. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes his friend. And finally, in adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son. So Paul's inspired logic here is that not only have all things been created by the Lord Jesus Christ, but all things are reconciled through Him. There is no hope apart from Him. How did He accomplish this? Again, verse 20, having made peace through the blood of His cross. You see, sin ruined the original harmony between the creature and the Creator, and even the harmony between creatures. That's why we all have a hard time getting along at time, right? But through Christ's shed blood on the cross, sin in principle has been conquered and the wrath of God has been completely satisfied because of His death. Satisfied for all who believe in Him and therefore we have peace with God. And for this reason, Paul goes on to say, Through Him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven... Because of Christ and His judgment upon sin, all that remains evil will someday be brought to justice. All wickedness, all sin, will one day be punished. Satan and sin, and all of the powers thereof will be stripped. So Christ's reconciliation and his preeminence over redemption has accomplished all of this. By the way, remember as we think about Christmas and closing this morning, remember all of this was promised when the angel of the Lord stood before those frightened shepherds. We read in Luke 2, 9, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened, as they should be, as we all would be if we stood in the presence of a holy God. The angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people for today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, God has provided a way for reconciliation to take place through Christ, through this Jesus. And then the sky was filled with a myriad of angels and in verse 13 a multitude of the heavenly host Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. King James translates it, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. It's an unfortunate translation, it's misunderstood by many people, taken out of context. You see this all the time in yard decorations, Christmas cards, peace on earth. The idea of, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just all get along and there's tranquility, no more wars, and so forth. But rather, we know that because of sin, there will be no peace apart from that which Christ can provide. Only through faith in Him can we have peace with God. Can that long war of treasonous rebellion finally be over? Because the wrath of God abides on unbelievers. Romans 5.10 says we were enemies of God. Colossians 1.21, we were once alienated and enemies of God. And those without Christ are at war with God even though they may not know it. And so the angelic announcement must be understood this way. He's saying in essence glory to God in the highest because He has provided a way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. On earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace among men of his good pleasure. So what the angel announced is this. Glory to God in the highest. Because those who God has sovereignly chosen to be the recipients of his grace. Purely on the basis of his good pleasure. Can now have peace with God. God. By grace, through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who have received this gift of salvation receive it solely on that basis, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as we see in the solas in this sanctuary. Folks, this was the theology that evoked such angelic adoration. Oh, dear Christian, how can we The undeserved recipients of such love do anything less than what the angels did. When in fact, they will never experience this kind of grace. Who is the Christ of Christmas? He is the one who is preeminent in creation, and he is preeminent preeminent in redemption. And so, let's join the angels this Christmas season. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The angelic praise is captured so perfectly in that hymn that we've sung so many times. Angels from the realms of glory wing your downward downward flight to earth. Ye who sing creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Common worship Come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. Oh, I hope that's the cry of your heart, dear friends. And worship carries the idea of reverence and adoration for God who provided a way for we as a sinful people to be reconciled to Him. We need to celebrate this. And worship translates practically into faith and obedience and service and love. May I challenge you this Christmas season to ask yourself and to ask your children and to talk about this with your families. Am I, are we truly worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Is He the priority of our life? If He is, dear friends, you're going to experience the soul-satisfying joy of His presence come what may. If He's not, your life is a mess. And it will continue to be a mess until you get right with the one who has made it possible for you to get right with him. Beloved, this is the Christ of Christmas. Amen. Oh, we have so much to be thankful for. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. I pray that you will speak to each individual heart. You know every need. I pray that by the power of your spirit, You will soften and not harden hearts. And I pray, Lord, that not a single person within the sound of my voice will reject the gospel message, the hope, the salvation that is theirs because of the Christ of Christmas. For it's in his name that I pray.